0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust.
0: In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups the police who investigate crime, and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders.
1: These are their stories.
0: One thing I always say, stupid is no defense for murder. Mr. Prosecutor, I think these sheep killed Cookie Molina.
1: These are not just any sheep, detective. These are Icelandic sheep. The Icelandic breed is in the North European short-tailed group of sheep, which exhibits a fluke-shaped, naturally short tail. The The fleece is dual-coated and comes in white as well as a range of browns, grays, and blacks, and they are both horned and pulled strains. Left unshorn for the winter, the breed is very cold-hardy. You know a lot about sheep, Mr. District Attorney, but what's that got to do with this case? It's just interesting. Briscoe sheep are interesting. People think they're stupid, but that's because we have such a narrow human-centered approach to intelligence. Don't we need to focus on getting a conviction? Detective, I'm tired of this place. The politics, the cynicism, I don't think any of these sheep murdered Cookie Molina. I want to be alone with them. Beat it, Briscoe. Okay, Mr. District Attorney. So peaceful. I can't believe anyone would accuse you guys of murder. People should just relax and listen to this interview. Hey, what are you doing? Put that down. Get back. And now, Colin Mecca.
0: I know uh, absolutely nothing about our guest today other than that he uh, raises Icelandic sheep here in Connecticut. But I am told that Sam Waterston is a stage film and television actor who has been nominated multiple times for an Emmy Award for his work as D.A. Jack McCoy in Law and Order, nominated for an Academy Award for his role as the journalist Sidney Shanberg in The Killing Fields, nominated for a Tony for Abe Lincoln in Illinois, and won a Golden Globe for his role as Forrest Bedford in the much-beloved I'll Fly Away. He's currently beginning the fourth season of the Netflix series, Grace and Frankie. And indeed, he does raise Icelandic sheep. I thought that was all we were going to talk about. Apparently, there's much more to this man uh, than I had understood. Uh, We're so happy to have you on the air with us, Sam Waterston.
2: Well, I'll be happy to talk about whatever you want to talk
0: about. We'll talk about sheep in the third and final segment. We're going to build to it. We're We're going to keep them on the edge of their seats. Okay. before we get to the sheep I, I I know that in this like many Americans you are going through a time in which you're troubled by the tenor of political conversation in this country uh, and the moment in public life to which we seem to have been brought so I I'm, I'm gonna begin there and say well maybe begin by saying that in your career if there's such a thing as a Sam Waterston role it is the person who is morally the reflective it is the person who is searching for for a moral answer in a complex uh, ethical landscape. Uh, and I'm assuming that you're bringing some of those qualities to bear as you look at the, the American moment in 2017. What are you seeing?
2: Well, when I was in the theater, mostly, I, I thought that my main uh, area of expertise was playing people who couldn't make up their minds. <laughs> um, you know, I played Hamlet a couple of times and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But and, and my father was very much that way, a person who saw all sides of questions. Mm-hmm. But once in a while, something would happen in his life where he thought he had to do something. Um, he felt like he had to – he had three children. He was married to an American wife, and he'd been living in the United States for a long, long time. And he volunteered uh, – to serve in the RAF during World War II. He uh, felt that it was incumbent on him to participate in the freedom rides in in the South, Mm -hmm. even as the New York Times was, you know, talking about how Martin Luther King had communist affiliations and all of that stuff, and that going down there was a really, really risky thing to do, but he thought he had to do it. So he's been... uh, an example to me for a long, long time. And this is one of those kind of unbluffable moments Mm -hmm. where it, it feels to me precious as living quietly on a sheep farm is to me (laughs) that we all sort of are called upon to stand up and say what we're seeing. And I guess the main reason, um, for that is because there's an authoritarian tenor to what's coming out of the administration. I I don't think there's any question about that, that the assault on the press and the assault on the courts and um, a general attitude of bullying and um, confrontation are attributes of authoritarian governments and – What history says is that if anybody's going to do anything, they better do it at the first sign of this kind of stuff, because if you wait once an authoritarian system is in place, it's really hard to dislodge.
0: You know, you mentioned so, living on a sheep farm, and I think one of the things that um, that you do in a situation like that is you, maybe you do have a little bit more time in silence before you begin to speak. And I've sensed in some of your correspondences with our producer, Betsy Kaplan, uh, you're feeling that people talk before they even know what it is they're going to say. Uh,
2: and, I do think that, and I think one of the things that worries me even about our conversation is you know the way things are structured we have an hour to fill Mm -hmm. Um, what if we only have two minutes of sense to make (laughs)
0: that's what editing's for
2: I beg your pardon? that's what editing's for (laughs) well then (laughs) what are you gonna do fundraise for the other 58 minutes I mean it there is something in the structure of the way um, our national conversation goes on in the media, both, both on the radio and on TV, and both in non-commercial and commercial uh, venues that has entertainment and keeping ratings up and uh, retaining eyeballs and, uh, sen- you know, it favors sensation. Um, it favors the quick answer. Um, it requires that the air be filled with talk. And all of that stuff is a playground for a showman. And if I were more of a, you know, a sort of um, celebrity showman, it would be a playground for me. But uh, it's not a good place to be talking about – it's not the best way to be talking about uh, serious questions about our democracy and stuff. And, And I, frankly, I don't know what you do about it. But I do think it's worth reminding your audience that that's the context in which they're listening to things. And so to weed out as much as they can the noise and also to lean and apply body language to the media insofar as they can and invite them to talk seriously about things. I I remember, I I think it was even before my time, but I remember seeing a recording once years and years ago um, of a British newsreader. And, you know, that's what people who gave the news on television used to be called. And on the radio, they used to be called newsreaders, not reporters and stuff like that. They were handed news to read and they read it. And they didn't pretend they were anything else. But he came on one day and said um, you know really nothing of very much importance (laughs) has happened today and that's the news for this evening I I don't know whether that could ever happen in in our context but weren't well, thinking about it as a kind of baseline. Why are you speaking at all?
0: Right. There used to be a, a music host on public radio. I don't know if you remember him, a man named Robert J. Lertzema, uh And he used to do his own news. He played classical music all day yeah, long. And then
2: he say, would say at the end, and that's some of the news. Right, exactly. Right? And there yeah.
0: was I think the day that Shostakovich died, he just said that Shostakovich had died. And he said, that's all the news there's going to be today. As far as he was concerned, anything else that had happened in the world. Was extraneous. Could wait for another day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that's a, a mistake that we're making. But I, I think is, I feel as though I just got through with a, having a different kind of conversation with a different group of people uh, that we, when we were talking a little bit about what does culture do um, and, and how does culture inform the kinds of sensibilities that you and I are talking about right now. And, and I think the mistake we sometimes make is that thinking that everybody is going to go see a movie like Moonlight and walk out of it and be changed by it. Uh, and in fact, only a small percentage of people are going to do that. But then what they're going to do, and, and this may go to the thing that you're talking about, what if there's only two minutes of sense out of 58 minutes, then they're going to talk some more, right? They're going to go have some coffee, they're going to go have some wine, and they're going to talk some more. And I feel like that's the place that transformation happens anyway, not necessarily when the thing is being presented, but when people are kind of masticating it after afterwards that that that's when people learn and that's how things change it it doesn't matter how long you and I talk it matters what people say about it afterwards
2: yes I I think that probably is true in most instances but I think in this political moment um, another kind of talk well requiring speech of people rather than just talk and I'm talking about in this public sphere um, I think it's Fine for people to talk over coffee, mm-hmm. and I don't think there's anything against it. And I understand the attraction of having somebody talking from the podium in the White House as if he were talking over coffee. I get the, I get the appeal, <laughs> but there's a different thing required here.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And actually, um, do you have a second for me? Here's a, I have a quote that I'd like to read to you.
0: Go right ahead.
2: This is. Um, Something that Lincoln said. There was a crowd outside his hotel window uh, the night before, when he spent the night in Gettysburg before he gave the famously very short Gettysburg address. Mm -hmm. And this is what he said. That crowd was yelling, you know, come out, come out, speech, speech, stuff like that. So he came out and he said, I appear before you fellow citizens merely to thank you for this compliment. The inference is a very fair one, that you would hear me for a little while at least were I to commence to make a speech. I do not appear before you for the purpose of doing so and for several substantial reasons. The most substantial of these is that I have no speech to make. In my position, it is somewhat important that I should not say any foolish things. It very often happens that the only way to help it is to say nothing at all. Believing that is my present condition this evening, I must beg of you to excuse me from addressing you further. Well, that—that that seems to me what the baseline ought to be for uh, public speakers in general, but certainly for the president of the United States.
0: All right. So let's, uh, by way of a sharp and depressing contrasts. Listen to the way things are now, Sam Waterston.
2: They had a bad decision. That's the only thing that was wrong with the travel ban. You had Delta with a a massive problem with their computer system at the airports. You had some people that were put out there, brought by very nice buses, and they were put out at various locations. Despite that, the only problem that we had is we had a bad court. We had a court that gave us what I consider to be, with great respect, a very bad decision very bad for the safety and security of our country. The rollout was perfect. The press has become so dishonest that if we don't talk about it, we are doing a tremendous disservice to the American people, tremendous disservice. We have to talk about it. To be honest, I inherited a mess. It's a mess at home and abroad, a mess.
0: Um, actually, Stephen Colbert had the right rejoinder. He said, no, you inherited a fortune. We elected a mess. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, to, I was listening to a British comedian named Andy Zaltzman on a show recently where he said, this must be a very exciting time to be a word. You never know how you're going to be used. Um, and Sam, I feel like that's that's where that's the bedrock where this problem is beginning right now is that not only are we misled about the present and about the past, but in some ways we can't trust words to mean what we thought they meant.
2: Yeah. So the question is, if this is the situation. Oh, and let me just say about this business of accusing the press of being li- uh, liars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember in the in the Cold War, um, thinking over and over again that. The United States would accuse the Soviet Union of doing things it itself knew it was guilty of, Mm -hmm. and vice versa. The Russians would continually accuse the United States of doing things that they knew they were themselves guilty of. And that's what I think this insistence from Trump on the lying press represents,
0: Right, that you, you you fling the accusation... That, that you know you are most guilty of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you fling it at the person who is most likely to expose you, too. I mean, that's the problem with the press from Trump's point of view, is if anybody's going to figure out that he's lying, it's them.
2: Yes, well, yeah. Montaigne said something about how people kill other people because they're afraid of them. And I think... That That might apply here, that Trump is trying to go to town on the press because he's afraid of it
0: right and and I, I do think that if there is an emotion that's driving this particular historical moment, it is fear. I mean, you heard him talking uh, about his attempted immigration ban. this this is very much. We did a show recently with a scholar who had really put together a database uh, on uh, on the activities uh, of immigrants here in America, and he said that since 911, 240,000 murders have taken place in the United States, of which 123 were ascribable uh, to Muslim immigrants. So, you know, this is a, a moment where we are being encouraged to be afraid of a group of people who don't pose the kind of threat that other people might. In other words, if you wanted to save the most American lives, you'd probably look somewhere else in that group of 240,000 murders and try to figure out who or what was the most dangerous thing. But fear- Uh,
2: I don't think Trump is the first politician to realized how attractive it is to invent or inflate a problem, because those are the problems that are easiest to fix. So I think that's an element here but I also agree with you completely that the idea is to make everybody afraid. And that seems to me to be one of the things that is characteristic of authoritarian regimes too. So again, I think that the if there are any, if there are any listeners out there who haven't already made up their minds that the that the thing to do now is to be really alert and not be lulled into thinking that this is okay or okay-ish or we'll get by it or any of those things. If you, if you get a whiff of this kind of authoritarian behavior early is the only time to do anything about it. And, and then I would just say, let's say this is a liberal nightmare that, um, that has somehow come alive in my head that all of this is going on, or, or let's say that the normal processes of government um, will take care of it in due time the way other strains from the middle of the road have been taken care of by our wonderful and flexible democracy and our wonderful and flexible constitution and system and foundational principles and all of that. Let's just say that all takes care of it in the normal course of time. I will be so happy to be wrong.
0: <laughs> yep.
2: Um and I will be really glad I look forward to the day I can come back on your show and say, yeah, weren't we stupid? That would be great.
0: That would be great. Well, you know, you've played journalists at least twice, right? S- Sidney yeah. Shanberg and Charlie Skinner uh, on the newsroom, Sidney Shanberg on The Killing Fields. The Killing Fields would give you, I think, great affinity also for the the situation that we've seen where people who had worked as translators, people who had aided American forces in places like Iraq and needed to get out because they'd engendered so much hostility locally, uh, might not be able to get out. But I, I, I want to specifically ask, do you feel some kind of kinship for journalists, either as a result of playing them, or do you play journalists because you feel some kind of kinship?
2: Um, I think I... Uh, you, you know one of the great things about being an actor is that you learn all kinds of stuff ab- about all kinds of fields and people that you would never know much about at all otherwise and so i feel like i got something of an education about journalism from playing journalists and and one of the things you know uh every so often uh, president trump says something that has some truth in it, and it, there is some truth in the fact that journalists make mistakes, and that they make mistakes together. That they that a kind of uh, groupthink gets going, and it becomes very hard to go to the journalist bar and maintain an attitude that doesn't fit in with the opinions that the other journalists have formed. So that is a that is a a legitimate thing that the, the journalism should take unto itself and worry about. But where would we be without a vigorous, skeptical, even cynical press? Because otherwise, you know, that's the only thing that stands between us and power, having its own way and its own say, and that being all there is uh, to do or listen to. I mean, it is the primrose path to authoritarian government.
0: We're going to think, yeah, go ahead.
2: Let them them make all the mistakes they want. Their pen is not connected to um, a war making power or any of the other (laughs) things that a president has at, at his fingertips.
0: Um, we're going to take a break pretty soon, but there's one more thing I wanted to bring up because it fits here. I know that—actually, um, John Cleese was uh, was on this show recently, and having John Cleese on your show is a very gratifying and exciting oh, that thing. that must have been wonderful. Just almost as great as having Sam Waterston. <laughs> um, but, oh, would
2: that were true.
0: <laughs> but I know that you've been— uh, uh, fascinated by, or at least interested by, uh, a dichotomy he makes between turtle brain and hare brain, uh, which seems to fit into the conversation we're having right now.
2: Yes. Hare brain and turtle mind, it was, a, it was a, a, um, a course that he taught for executives. And that, you know, having the quickest and readiest answer and all that stuff was really not what you wanted to have from the executive of a company. And he said in one of his lectures, you come in, you greet everybody in the office, you give strict instructions to your secretary that you are not to be disturbed, you go into your office, you shut the door and lock it, you pull down the shade, and you go to sleep. <laughs> Just shut up.
0: <laughs> well, on the other hand...
2: a different way of dealing with
0: stuff right on the other hand I feel as though um you know you and the rest of the cast of the newsroom you know these those Aaron Sorkin scripts which flow so quickly i mean i, I as a journalist am sitting there watching jeff daniels you know just spit out all this very eloquent quickly knit together uh analysis and i'm thinking wow i don't i can't talk that way i don't think i could talk that way if i tried all year to talk that way
2: it, yeah and if you're an actor in the same show you watch him and you think are they expecting me to talk that way <laughs>
0: But I wonder if maybe Aaron Sorkin is setting too high a standard for our our hairbrains.
2: Oh, I don't know. I mean, well, I mean, I don't. You know, obviously, it's worth reminding the audience that Aaron Sorkin sat at his desk for a very long time thinking <laughs> of that very snappy dialogue, and that that's that the that the snappy dialogue is the result of deliberative thinking and. uh so, if you're going to talk that fast, you should do some deliberate thinking in advance. Maybe right.
0: you should get a sheep farm and sit there very quietly thinking for a while, <laughs> and and I, I then you that can helps.
2: start talking. You know, this is an experiment. I I don't know. Um, I don't know whether I have two minutes of sense for a fifty-eight <laughs> minute program. I really don't, and and I'll play this back and I'll I'll review myself, and I'm trembling to think what I'll think.
0: All right. Well, get ready to tremble some more. We're going to take a break, Sam Waterston. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about matters of faith. Um, And this is maybe the part of the conversation I'm looking forward to the most, except for, of course, the sheep. We'll be back right after this. You talk
2: too much. You worry me to death. You talk too much. You even worry my pet. You just talk
0: We're talking to Sam Waterston. Um, i I'm, I refuse to explain to you who he is. Now you're supposed to know who he is, anyway. But obviously, he's one of America's most acclaimed actors, both on stage and on television, uh, on film. And speaking of film, I want to play uh, a, a clip from one of your one of my favorite Sam Waterston performances. And, you know, you said before that when you're an actor, you kind of get to find out what various jobs are like, what it would be like, at least in a, a, for a, in a, in a tourism sense, to, to, to have that particular job. So, Sam Waterston, this is you in Crimes and Misdemeanors as a rabbi. Maybe I did make some questionable moves.
2: Only you would know that, Judah. I don't anymore, Ben. Sometimes it's worse than, worse than jail. It's a human life. You don't think God sees? God is a luxury I can't afford. Now you're talking like your brother Jack. Jack lives in the real world. You live in the kingdom of heaven. I managed to keep free of that real world, but suddenly it's found me. You fool around with her for your pleasure, and then when you think it's enough, you want to sweep her under the rug? There's no other solution but Jack's bed. I push one button and I can sleep again nights. Could you sleep with that? Is that who you really are?
0: That's Sam Watterson talking to the great Martin Landau uh, in Crimes and Misdemeanors. You know, in raising just a terrific question, Sam, what is the real world? Is the real world this place of moral compromise in in which whatever is most efficacious and gets us to the finish line as we perceive it is the thing that we do? Or is there another real world that's governed a little bit more by eternal verities? And, And I know, or at least I sense that I know from your career and your background, this is something you think about a bit or perhaps more than a bit
2: yeah I thought about it for a very very long time and I I really hesitated to say anything about it um, but now I'm 76 hmm. and it feels like trying to have all the ducks perfectly in a row and all that stuff is not an excuse for for not saying kind of giving an account of yourself and And so, just by accident, this past Sunday, I was listening to Krista Tippett, and she had a guest, Margaret Wertheim, who brought up something that I've been thinking about for years and years. And she said it much better. And I've ordered all her books, and I'm going to be much, much smarter after I read them. But the the gist of what she was saying was that the world that we have grown up in has left very has left Precious little space for for faith, because um, ever since the scientific revolution, we have basically been tending to think that there is only one space, the material space, and and no other. So, well, I went to a church school, for example. We went to chapel every day. Um, the chapel was one on one side of a circle. And the schoolhouse and the science lab was on the other side. And I remember clearly our physics teacher, or maybe he was our chemistry teacher. I'm not sure which, but his name was he had an appropriate name. His name was Mr. Zink. <laughs> and, and one day in class, he said, somebody raised a question that had something to do with faith. And he said, the chapel is on the other side of the circle, And what goes on over there doesn't have anything to do with what goes on over here. And what goes on over here doesn't have anything to do with what goes on over there. And that wasn't just Mr. Zink talking. I think that was the whole of Western culture talking from at least the Second World War on, maybe from the First World War, maybe way back to the beginnings of the scientific revolution, maybe ever since darwin i don't i don't know where you where the start date is but by the time i was growing up that was very much the deal that's over there and the real world is here so it it's always been a kind of struggle against i don't know intellectual embarrassment and uh and not wanting to have people looking at you pityingly and saying, "Oh, <laughs> that's nice you you have faith that's that probably helps you get through the day. That's nice uh, so th- I think that that has probably gotten the way of my speaking up about this, but I'm really happy to be able to report that as of right now, I'm very confident that God is yeah. <laughs> i I don't know. I don't pretend to know much about, much more than that, except I I really do think that love is him and he is love. But even that, you know, pretty soon that gets complicated. So.
0: Well, we know Mr. Zink was wrong anyway. I mean, first of all, just to uh, increase your comfort level, uh, let's actually play a a little bit of uh, uh, Margaret Wertheim talking to our friend Krista Tippett. I love mathematics and deeply believe in its validity for describing lots of physical phenomena, but I think we are first and foremost embodied beings, and we have minds, and I think the embodiment of ourselves is the primary reality. So, Sam, you know, I think Mr. Zink is wrong. There's a, there's a great line by Stoppard, I think it's in Jumpers, where the protagonist is trying to figure out the tipping point that you're describing, the moment at which it became wildly unfashionable uh, to, to plug in, in any set of, of religious or supernatural beliefs into, uh, into anything. And he says something like, there must have been a noticeable moment when that happened, when, in effect, the nose had it. Um which I've always loved, but it seems yeah. to me that the message of physics and mathematics at this moment is as easily interpretable as an affirmation of mystery as it is of anything else. I mean everything post Einstein, everything in math post girdle seems to point in the direction of mystery, not certainty
2: yes i had a i took a I took an aptitude test when I was at first at Yale that said that i was had a much greater aptitude. For mathematics and physics than I did for languages, which was to me just preposterous. My father was a linguist and all of that stuff. I just knew that that's what my bent was. And I talked talk to this guy who was a classmate of mine who was a physicist, and he began talking about physics as a high, an extraordinarily high form of art. And um, by the time we'd Across the freshman quadrangle, I was really, really sorry <laughs> that I hadn't gotten more deeply into math and, and, and physics, and, and, and particularly into number. I mean, that thing you played by Margaret Wertheim. she also talked about being a five- or six-year-old child lying on the ground after having just been told in a class of hers that what the number pi was and how it related to all circles. And lying on her back and looking at the sky and looking at the sun and noticing that it was a circle and thinking, so where is pi or what is pi or how does it relate to the sun? And that sort of finished her. She was a a physicist for life from Mm -hmm. that because number is itself a a mysterious thing. And then, of course— She was only five or six years old, and she had a consciousness that was able to speculate about the nature of the reality that she was looking at and its relationship to mathematics. And um, that in itself seems to me to be an argument for another space. At least you have to make space for consciousness.
0: Yes, Um, which is, of course, Stoppard's most recent play. The hard problem is all about that question of consciousness. Um, So I I want to also go back to that thing you were saying about how people uh, hear about faith and they say, well, isn't that nice? It probably Mm. helps him get through the day. And there is this temptation, I think, to want to pull the plug on faith. And it's almost like pulling the plug on how in 2001 when you do that to certain things. I'll just bore you for a second with my uh, own story about this recently. I've been commissioned to write some spoken word uh, dramatic piece that it's going to accompany uh, a symphony by Liszt that's about the Faust story. And they wanted a lot of sort of Bernie Madoff, Lance Armstrong kind of stuff. And at one point I have God speaking and they, there was a clearly a sense for the from the rest of the artistic team. Well, God, really, do we want God speaking? And I said, look, this doesn't make any sense. The whole story doesn't make any sense if you unplug it from religion. There's no point in even doing a Faust symphony if you're not going to talk about that part of it. Uh, and I think the the notion that our culture was divorceable from uh, uh, from religion in the same way that Mr. Zink wanted to, science to be divorceable from it, is a, it, just, it just drains all the lubricant out of culture.
2: My friend Peter Steiner has written a comic novel or whatever they call it, an illustrated novel or story. And he's done the illustrations um, called An Atheist in Heaven. And it begins with a guy having cardiac arrest, and then he has an out-of-body experience and he meets God, and it's a really entertaining conversation. <laughs> and the illustrations are wonderful. God is a woman. God is a man. God is a dragonfly. God is really, really scary-looking. God is very, very nice-looking. You know, it's fabulous.
0: You are talking right now about your current relationship with faith and this notion that God is. But I think maybe unlike a lot of other actors, as I understand this, you've been pretty active in the Episcopalian Church for a long time. I think, weren't you in charge? I think you might have been, even been Archbishop of Canterbury for a while. I might,
2: That's true, I was, yeah. yeah. But I had to quit because I got a job in California.
0: <laughs> but is are you less interested in organized religion and more interested in, in a solitary uh, approach no, to No, I this? would
2: say one of the good things, one of the things that should be a recommendation of religion is that with without it uh, or, or some equivalent uh, philosophy that gives structure to the way you look at the world, I think you are, we are all prey to every wind that blows. Mm-hmm. And to go back to the current uh, political situation, I think that's that connection to, you know, this is okay and that's not okay. Telling the truth is good, lying is bad. Not on a tactical level. Not on uh you know, not on a, not because it's good or bad politics. None of that. It's just not right. It's easy to lose track of which way is up if you don't have faith. So I, I think that's a, I think that's a recommendation of it.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm nodding furiously as you say that. I mean, it and does. I
2: also think that um, it's easier to look at the world as it is. From the point of view that is part of faith, which is hope, than it is to to look at it uh, because it's really terrifying. The world is really terrifying, mm-hmm. uh, and our hold on life is very, very tenuous. But we need to look at it as it is, and I don't. I'm too chicken. I wouldn't be able to look at it as it is if I didn't have some faith and so I'm really glad to be able to say that you no know, I'm confident that God is I like that
0: and I think also I'm grateful. part of the. I go to church every Sunday because it's an opportunity to quiet myself a little bit and think about well what's the whole point of this thing what are we doing here and and why should I do one thing instead of another and and this I mean, I don't know, over the, when I was in Vieques recently, I was talking to my significant other, and I have a lot of people who ask me to do a lot of things, and somebody had wanted me to do something that involved a meeting with a whole bunch of, a group of people who are very afflicted in a certain way, and she was sort of saying, well, you probably don't have time to do that. I said, are you kidding? I follow the Nazarene. I I have no choice but to do that. That's, yeah, yeah, that's an easy, it makes some some decisions, Sam, get really easy because you're actually running them through something other than your own wild speculation about what would selfishly be the most appealing to you. Yes. All right? Yes. 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 All right. Well, we're going to end the session on, yes, this particular segment of uh, the the conversation with Sam Waterston. We've promised you sheep. We're going to give you sheep. Just have a little patience. We're going to take a break. When we come back, you'll get sheep.
2: Why am I praying? Who's going to hear? sin right
0: now is from fear
1: fear of The city was quiet, but I was
0: still awake. My name's Betsy Kaplan. I carry a badge and a
1: gun. I'm a producer who doesn't always play by the rules. Certain people helped me with this show. Let's say their names were Wolf and McPants. The part of Bill Curry was played by Chuck Woolery. Get it, Woolery? On tomorrow's show, maybe you heard people talk about treason. But what does that mean? But for now, Back to Colin and Sam.
0: We've been passing a lovely afternoon with Sam Waterston, stage film and television actor, nominated multiple times for Emmy Awards for his work as DA Jack McCoy on Law and Order, Nominated for an Academy Award for the amazing performance of Sidney Schanberg in The Killing Fields, for a Tony for Abe Lincoln in Illinois, a Golden Globe winner for his role as Forrest Bedford in a TV series I liked very much called I'll Fly Away. He's currently appearing uh, in or beginning the fourth season of the Netflix series Grace and Frankie. We'll talk about that in just a second, too. And he is raising Icelandic sheep and cattle on his farm uh, in Connecticut. So, Sam Watterson, this is the meat, almost literally the meat of our conversation, uh, to talk about Icelandic sheep. Obviously, anybody listening to this show knows that they have the agouti gene, which causes them to be banded and more colorful than, than many other sheep. Uh, are there other reasons why you've gravitated specifically towards them?
2: I have this guy who's my friend, and he's, we've worked together for, ah, I don't know, 25 years. He started out driving me to New York when I was doing plays. He grew up on a farm. I had some wonderful experiences on my sister's ranch. And um, and so we would talk lazily as we were going down to the city and coming back from the city about maybe turning this place where we live back into a farm. It had been a farm once. So we got ourselves into a <laughs> A huge amount of trouble doing it, but when we when it came time to choose what sort of animals to get, we thought we wanted to get bomb proof animals animals that could survive and thrive without much help from us in the northeast, where in those days you had to figure that it was going to be very, very cold quite a lot, even though it's now kind of summer today i I looked around and uh, We got uh, belted Galloway cattle, and we got Icelandic sheep for that reason. And they're fine. Uh, And we've gotten smarter and better at taking care of them. But they're pretty independent. They're pretty darn good at taking care of themselves. And the other reason that we got them was that we knew from the beginning that we wanted to have them live on grass for their whole lives and not be dependent on corn. Uh, at the very beginning, we thought we had to feed them corn or, or they would die. And then it turns out that that's a complete fiction. So that they were born to eat grass. And, and so they do just fine on grass. And we only put organic inputs into the fields. So they have a pretty clean diet. And uh, what's great about this? I, I guess I would say this. I don't know what the solution is. I don't think that President Trump's solution is anywhere close to being a good solution. But I think that the problem of there not being enough physical work for the number of people that want to do it, people that want to work with their hands, um, that's a real problem. And I think it's a kind of a real problem of the modern age, because Working with your hands is not something that the modern age really cares very much about, but it's very much in our own DNA. It's, it's one of the things that uh, makes you feel more completely a human being. And so somewhere along the line, when the real causes of the evaporation of these kinds of jobs are being dealt with, I think attributing the dignity to that kind of work that it deserves – should be a factor in considering how to deal with it.
0: You know, there's another part to this, too, for me anyway. People who listen to this show may remember this, that my son and I have kind of an addiction to farmers' markets, and we drive all over the state uh, to farmers' markets even in the winter uh, to a point where people have suggested that maybe we have some kind of problem. But (laughs) um, So such meat as I buy, most of it is not only from farms here in Connecticut, but from people— whom I've had conversations with, maybe even on a regular basis. And when you think about the intimacy of eating something, putting something in your mouth uh, that's going to go into your stomach, it, it's it's sort of odd the way most of us live, which is that we buy that stuff from some big, huge chain, and supermarket chain, and we sort of have no idea... Who produced it or anything? I get a lot of comfort somehow out of having talked to somebody who was connected to the thing that I'm putting in my mouth. Does that make any sense to you?
2: It does. It does. I would only say that it's uh, that somebody's paying for you to have that luxury. Somebody's paying for you to have it by working for 25 cents an hour or, you know because they run their own farm, and that's about what it works out to when you add up the hours. Or, like me, I have a day job, which makes it possible to afford to have this farm. But farms in New England have been uncompetitive with the rest of the country and the rest of the world for a very, very long time, going back to the first days of the railroad. So Yes, there are all these beautiful things about being able to participate directly and knowing where your food is coming from, and all of that stuff is very valuable. But the first value, I think, is the dignity of that kind of work itself. We're not taking that into account. We're not willing to pay
0: for it. So, Sam Watterson, we, we're getting near the end of this uh, this hour or so. It's a little bit less than an hour that we have, really. In which you were so worried about whether we would say anything more that made sense. Oh, uh, well, I don't to, know yet. I haven't listened to
2: yeah. it back.
0: <laughs> I think we're doing okay, and and but we've all done it. We've had almost no conversations whatsoever about acting, which is I think fine with you and and okay with me. Although I one question I always have about somebody like you, you've played so many of the roles that you would have wanted to play, and you've played in in incredibly prestigious venues. You've, as you said, you've done Hamlet, you've done Lear, you've done Polonius, you've done Prospero. Uh, those are just some Shakespeare roles. And so as I'm sitting here in Connecticut with all these marvelous um, regional theaters, and obviously you've played uh, a bunch of them uh, already, is there a classic role that could just get you you know, really interested, something that you haven't been able to do, it doesn't have to be Shakespeare, a role that... You want, really want to try someday that some smart person like Gordon Edelstein could say, hey, Sam, why don't Gordon you come down here? Gordon
2: and I talk all the time. I love him. I think that's a great theater. I worked there. I did a Tom Stoppard play there. I, I
0: saw did, that play. I saw you in that play. It's the one with the pie fight, right?
2: Travesties, yeah. yeah. And I did an Athol Fugard play, and Athol Fugard was there, which was a thrill of a lifetime. Uh and I've worked at the Hartford Stage too, right. and that's also a great theater. I, I mean, Connecticut really was very, very lucky, the Yale rep. and it's a lucky place, as far as having wonderful theaters to choose from. I have a play in my back pocket, but if I do it, it <laughs> probably won't be at a Connecticut theater. it'll be in New York. But if that falls through
0: <laughs> right. You know everybody's phone number already, so. Well, Sam Watterson, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I know also that you're a very close and careful listener to public radio, so we appreciate yes, that. Indeed. You.
2: Thank you very much, and thank you for all the stuff that you do. Uh, if, if the air is going to be filled with talk, may it be your talk.
0: <laughs> well, let's end on that note. Thank you for being with us today, sir. Yep. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.